This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up, a discussion about sexuality throughout the lifespan. Sex later on in life, I feel like we need to grow up and realize sex is like a decision. Like you want to have sex, you think it's good for the relationship. And so you have to do the things that will allow you to continue to have a good sex life. Then we'll hear from Brecha Bardwigler, also known as Balabustas, about her work as a sex and intimacy coach, bridal and sex educator, and birth doula. Most of the calls that I teach do know about sex. Not a whole lot, but they're aware that it exists. And usually, though, they think they know a lot more than they actually do. But what they really just know is petrifying. And of course, the final word. Stay tuned for the joy of text right after this quick word from our sponsor. At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. Welcome back to The Joy of Text. I'm Sarah Rosner-Lawrence, and I'm here with Dr. Batsheva Marcus, Clinical Director of Maze Women's Health. Hi, guys. Hey. And I'm also here with, with Rabbi Dove Linzer, Rosh Hashiva and President of Yeshiva Cholavei Torah. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Rabbi Linzer. What about me? <laughs> oh, I got you. Uh, <laughs> you didn't introduce me. <laughs> okay. So our topic for this episode is sexuality throughout the lifespan. Um, so I, th- I think the, the inspiration for this topic came kind of from two places. So number one, we've gotten countless listener questions over the years from people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond asking for advice about everything from sexuality during later child-rearing years to sexuality during and after menopause. We used to spice up sex after 30-plus years of marriage, um, dealing with sexual dysfunction, and much, much more. So we wanted to address those questions. And also, Dr. Marcus always says that we hyper-focus on sexuality for the 18 to 25-year-olds and then ignore the 25 to 85-year-olds. So, Thank you. You stole my, you stole my line. I'm sorry. Know, I've just great. heard you say it before. No, totally. Yes. So this episode is where we want to start addressing all of those questions. So, so I'm laughing a little bit because we say like sexuality through the lifespan. And what we really mean to say is sexuality for older people, right? <laughs> so, um, so I do think this is a this is a critical issue. I'm going to start by saying my the, uh, another thing which I say all the time, which is that your st- sex life is not static. People have this idea that once you start having sex, you're just going to keep having sex the way you have it once you get things kind of worked out so that they're working for you. But nothing could be further from the truth. Things change all the time. Um, your physiology changes, your psychology changes, your relationship changes, you change. So it's really important to kind of keep keep all that going. I do want to start with a couple of really interesting statistics, which is the most sexually active group, according to statistics, is the 31 to 45-year-olds. Really? Um, yes, 87% ahead of the 18 to 30-year-olds. Um, and then the 46 to 50-year-olds are less than them. Is that, is that uh, accounting for marital status? So this is from the UK. Mm-hmm. So And there are lots of different studies, and they don't all show the same thing, unfortunately. But um, I think we have a vision that like the 23-year-olds are all having tons of sex and then the 30-year-olds have left and 40 less. And that is Mm -hmm. actually not 
100% accurate. So, mm. but rather than focus on the numbers, I just want to sort of talk about some of the things that come up. I mean, I do think one of the biggest problems is we have these ridiculously over romanticized views of what sex should be like. Like that comes from the movies, that comes from, you know, Disney. And it also comes from like those early relationships, the early parts of the relationships where you're thinking about sex a lot, you're having sex a lot, you're obsessed about sex a lot. But that's such a short period in people's lives. And that sex later on in life, I feel like we need to grow up and realize sex is like a decision. Like you want to have sex, you think it's good for the relationship. And so you have to do the things that will allow you to continue to have a good sex life. And I feel like people are so resistant to that idea, the ideas of like scheduling sex and planning and talking about sex. Like people feel like, but sex should be natural. It should just happen by itself. So I feel like that is a dramatic, dramatic shift that happens. So one of the things I do want to talk about is um, as you get older, there are definitely physiological issues that come up. Now, some physiological issues that you have when you're really young, like vaginismus, you've heard me talk about, sort of tightness pelvic pain, those things are much less likely. Premature ejaculation for men, that's much less likely. And then you have often this like golden period in the middle where you have less of those things. But then women head into perimenopause and menopause. Um, and sometimes their sex drive plummets. Men also have dramatic drops in their testosterone levels as they get older, and that can have a significant effect on their sex drive. Um, men can then start having delayed ejaculation. Women can start having orgasm problems as their estrogen drops. So there are tend to be more of those physiological conditions that kind of arise. And if people had a more realistic view about sex, I think they would realize, oh my God, something's shifted. We need to get help. It looks like you have a question, Dove. I no. do. <laughs> okay, stop. All right. No, I, I, I'm curious because there's a place in between where you don't have to be overcome with passion and feel that that's the only way I'm going to have sex. But if the drive is going down, and I wonder also if the pleasure goes down, and you haven't mentioned that, but then, you know, to schedule something just because you're supposed to do it, there's a lot of things I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to the gym. I'm supposed to do a lot of things. But if there's no drive for them, then it's less likely that I'm going to make the time. So even if I know it's good for me or good for my marriage. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the interface between drive and even a less idealized sense of what sex is so or romanticized. I think what I need to split for you when you have that question is the sep separation between drive, arousal, pleasure, orgasm, right? In other words, you may not have the as hard a drive to do it, but you still might get the same amount of pleasure to do it, right? Like it, you, you, you don't have that. You're thinking about it all the time. You're wanting to do it all the time, but it still feels really good. You still have an orgasm. You still okay, feel so great. I got to say, when it comes to the gym, when I go to the gym, I feel great. But I have no motivation to go to the gym. Okay. So that right. But right. But then you do make a decision that you're gonna want to go to the gym. So right. if your drive is down, there are physiological things you can do about it. Like you've heard me talk about like supplementing hormones, both for men and for women, and that mm -hmm. can be hugely dramatic. There's also like if you do behavioral economics, there's the whole nudge theory. Like if you make it's easier to have sex, if you plan times to have sex, you know you're gonna have sex, it's much easier to kind of get yourself to it if it's something that you enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. So Understanding that you can put you can bring your drive up, but sometimes you also say to yourself, "Oh, this will feel great when I do it." And I think it's a little different from the gym because the gym often you have to like push hard and get past an unpleasant point mm -hmm. in order to have the pleasant point. With sex, it's often not that's not the case. With sex, it's often you just have to get yourself started, right? And then the pleasure kicks in. So I don't know if that addresses that a little bit, yeah. but I do. So it's it's all kind of a balancing act. But I, I do think it all starts with this decision, like. 
I think sex is really important. I think it's good. And I think it feels really good when I have it. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't feel really good when you have it, then that's an issue. And that needs to be addressed, I think, often from a medical perspective. But assuming it feels really good when you have it, then it becomes a decision. And that's something you you know, schedule in. But I feel like people are so resistant to doing that. Like I feel like they feel like somehow putting sex on the agenda feels like unromantic. And it makes me a little nuts because I feel like it's so unrealistic to expect that you're just going to happen to be in the mood, even though you haven't been in two weeks and your spouse is just going to happen to be in the mood and you're going to be able to make it happen otherwise. So I think that's unrealistic. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's really interesting because we actually had a recent listener question, um, from someone in their late thirties or early forties who, um, who was asking for advice on how to spice up their sex life. And they said specifically, don't, don't just tell me to schedule time for this, or don't just tell me to have like a little getaway with my husband because those things aren't going to work. So it, when people say they aren't going to work, the question then to ask is they've, tr- you've tried them and it hasn't worked or the problem's gotten so problematic at this point that that it by itself is not going to work. And then there may be physiological reasons that need, like people may need to bump up their hormone levels, for example. That's one example. Or deal with their stress levels or sleep more. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons why people physiologically don't want to. Um, and then, and I'm not suggesting that scheduling it is the, the final answer, but it is if you don't schedule, it's not going to happen. It's like davening. I feel like it's a little <laughs> bit like davening. If you daven every day, there's going to be times you're going to have really good davening. Right. right. If you're having sex once or twice a week and then you spice it up, you're going to have some fabulous sex. You're going to have some fine sex and you're going to have some fabulous sex. But if you're not having sex at all, it's really unlikely you're going to have fabulous sex. Mm-hmm. So I want to say something about scheduling because actually here's an area that halacha has what to say. So the, the myths of Ona, which is the husband's obligation to make sure he's having sex with his wife, um, the classic formulation of that is that it means at a periodic basis, once a week, twice a week. And then there's this whole other dimension of being responsive when the wife indicates that she just desires to have sex, or she says that she wants to have sex. And I have to tell you that, you know, when I first learned this, I felt like, oh my God, this scheduling thing has such a negative attitude towards sex. You want to sort of be the, embrace the approach that it's more about being responsive to desire and so on. But, you know, through our conversations and other reading, it's become clear to me that there's actually deep wisdom in that idea. Like there should be an element where it's spontaneous, I think, hopefully, but the deep wisdom that like make time for sex, schedule it in, I think is at the core of what the Torah has to say about the mitzvah of marital sex. So I'm going to even push that a little further. By scheduling sex, you allow there to be spontaneous times, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, you give space for the spontaneity to start because if you don't schedule it and you don't have sex, there's no room for the spontaneity. We'll also like to talk about the fact that Nita comes to an end. Um, Sarah and I were just, when we were discussing this episode a little before, we got started talking on air, um, I said to her, you know, for young women, when you get started going to the mikvah, you feel like you're going to be going to the mikvah forever. It feels like it's, you know, let's say you're 25 and, you know, it's going to feel like it, that's it. You're going to the mikvah. You go to the mikvah once a month or do every once every three months. It does end. You know what I'm saying? Like if at 55 or 50, 45 or 55, sometimes there's a variety of reasons you could stop going to the mikvah because, you know, you don't get your period anymore. All of a sudden you turn around and you're like, oh my God, I don't have the mikvah. And the weird thing is, is that the mikvah has been sort of giving you the on and off time. The mikvah has mm-hmm. been scheduling you and even though you don't necessarily aware of that. And all of a sudden now you're responsible to do it yourself. Hmm. Um, do you hear from women who say that they miss going to the mikvah? Yeah. So somebody once said to me, I feel 
I'm not going to get the Hebrew right here. Nida from the like Nida means like prohibited, right? She or said Ladun right. or something from the from from oh, oh, Minudet. Minude. She said I feel Minudedet. Is that okay. Minudedet? Mehamikvah. Uh-huh. Like she said, right? Like this was a ritual I did all my life, yeah. and it gave a certain rhythm to our sex life. Mm-hmm. And now it's gone. Right. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. It's not one that we hear all the time. And um, I don't know. Like, let's say a woman said she wanted to go to the mikvah mm. after she's not menstruating anymore. What would you say? Well, I think that's maybe that's a whole other episode because it taps into a very sort of relatively new phenomenon, which is using the mikvah for non-halachic purposes, you know, for life cycle events. Somebody, going back to our earlier conversation, you know, going back to an earlier episode, somebody has, for example, a miscarriage, or sometimes they're doing it for young girls when they have their first menstruation, trying to use the mikvah in other ways for, you know, for life cycle events. So there's nothing halachically wrong with it. You know, some people feel that it's sort of perverting a halachic uh, um, ritual to use it for non-ritual purposes. But I think that, uh, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say what I think. It's going to get too much of a conversation. But anyway, but, you know, there is room to be doing that. And uh, I think that that's powerful. It speaks to how we, at times in our lives, you know, could people could feel resentful about it and later they could really value it and miss it. Yeah, it's also really interesting because as, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, like, as birth control shifts, um, there are more options for women at even younger ages to kind of significantly pause their need to ever go to the mikvah or stop it entirely. Um, right. Like two know, examples might be sometimes if you're on birth control pills for a long extended period of time, you stop getting your period entirely or an IUD, the the IUD that has the, that the, the morena, which has a little progesterone in it over time can do some staining initially, but then eventually you stop getting your period and then you just stop going to the mikvah. And then there are women in places like Lakewood that haven't been going to the mikvah for their entire married life. Because they're having children. Because they're, they're having pregnant. children. All the they're, they're pregnant, they're pregnant and having children. And, preg- and pregnant and breastfeeding and having children. Right. Right. So so there is kind of this, um, like, various reasons throughout this sort of middle and later um, point in, in the lifespan when, when mikvah might not be as much of a – you know, driving force in people's sex life. So, so what do you say to couples who come to you and are either struggling with that or not really sure how to shift their, their sex life in light of that new reality? So I do think that's where this idea of like putting sex on the scheduling sex, putting sex on the map, like your daily map is really important. And one of the things I've noticed is that as your children change ages, it becomes very different on how you do that, right? So when people have little children, it's very hard for them to like find time often to have sex. But what happens when they have like middle school age children you know, now they're sh- they're running for soccer practice. They're like their their schedules are shifting from each other, and then it's again a, a different change for when you decide to have sex. And when the kids get to be grown up, and you now have your adult kids, basically your teenage kids, sitting outside your door, and they're up later than you, it makes this like whole other dynamic of how do you do that? And also, people become very self conscious about like my kids are becoming sexual beings. I don't want them to think of me having sex. Um, it's it's an incredibly interesting. Shift in people's psychology as to how, you know, how they approach sex as their kids get to be ages where they're sexual beings as well. Mm. So I would back up and say, for people who are sort of struggling with having sex as you get older, it is critically important to sit down and figure out together how to make time for that. 
But it's also important to address all the physiological issues that come up. That's true whenever, but I feel like it's more it's more important now because more things come up. There's nothing wrong with you. Doesn't mean you're old. Viagra was made for a reason. Do you know what I mean? Like testosterone is there for a reason. Um, as I'm a I'm, you know, pretty big proponent of estrogen, but do some research. There's a wonderful new book out called Estrogen Matters. Um, and then start thinking about what advantages you now have as your kids get older that you can, or you hit those menopausal stages, like a bed, like think about replacing your bed. Like if you're somebody who had two separate beds for all the years of your marriage, now might be the opportunity for you guys to get that king size bed that you have been lusting after. Yes, I want to ask you, first of all, I advise couples if they have the money and if they have the space, which isn't always the case in Manhattan, to consider getting a queen and a twin rather than two twins. Because just for when, you know, when the woman is not in need, that allows them to share a bed in a more comfortable way than pushing two twins together. But um, I also read that they, uh, I think in the New York Times or somewhere, that um, that couples often prefer, and I think they, I don't know if they say it's better for couples, that even if, you know, they're having sex and so on, to sleep separately, to sleep in, to sleep in separate beds, that somehow the freedom to, I don't know, not have to worry about your partner while you're sleeping, you're looking like I'm speaking probably, nonsense or well, something. Well, probably sleep quality is just better when Ooh. you're not getting woken up by someone else tossing and turning. So I'm not looking at you like you're crazy. I didn't see that. I I did not see that. And that's why I I smiled when you said I get a queen size bed as opposed, because I think a king size bed is different because a king Uh. size bed is big enough that both people have enough space. Mm-hmm. A queen size bed or a double bed is still kind of squishy for I people. See. And so you are kind of in each other's space in a way you may not be. And I think what's interesting about the king size bed, I'll just throw this out there, is you know, what happens is you go into menopause or you stop getting your period. You have an IUD, you haven't had your period, you're planning on using it through in through menopause, and you get the king size bed, and then you take out the IUD or you stop the birth control pills, and all of a sudden or or you're using estrogen and you stop using estrogen for some reason, you start bleeding. You're now mm. 65 years old mm. and you're bleeding and mm. you have a king-size bed. <laughs> um, it's complicated, right? right? I mean... Right. I mean, then you get to all these laws about staining and so on where you could be that you're bleeding, but technically you're not a need you know? it's First of all, it's not menstrual bleeding, but that's not enough to make a woman not a well, need So that's interesting. Can we pause for a second? If somebody stops taking their estrogen... Yeah. It is blood from the oh, right. Uterus. When you said if somebody is sixty-five, yes, but it is. In other words, they haven't been bleeding because they've been using hormones to keep themselves. Wait, I'm I'm, I'm not understanding. At sixty-five, you could still have. You yes. Could still so be if you are, if you're propping, so this is a really interesting piece of information. If you're propping up your body with artificial horm with hormones, uh-huh. I hate using the word artificial because you know we're talking bioidentical hormones right. and it's perfectly safe and healthy. When you stop using them. It's not you're not going back to a cycle of your period, but you will bleed mm. often once or twice. Like your body has to kind of readjust to I that. See, I see. So it is hormonal bleeding, uh-huh. and it is complicated. And you know, I have run into couples who've had that issue. Hmm. Um, is it heavy? Is it like? Is it? Yeah, or is it, it can be very heavy. heavy. So, so I yeah, women could become a need at ninety five, at, at sixty five, or so, ninety five. <laughs> no, so when there's the World Health Organization had this whole study on estrogen. This is where the idea that estrogen wasn't healthy came out, and it was very very, very flawed. They did this huge study. Until that point, doctors had been handing estrogen out like it was M&Ms. Um, and then they did this study, and then they did the study, and they realized women were getting like strokes and 
and they pulled the estrogen for everybody, which was terrible. Mm. And I know personally of 75-year-old women who not only started having horrible hot flashes, but were bleeding wow. for the first time in all those years. Um, now they've really come to realize how the kind of estrogen and progesterone they were using flawed that study dramatically, and that estrogen is actually quite a very positive thing in most cases, although there's some cases you can't use it. But yes, you can have a situation where a woman starts bleeding at 75, and then she gets treated like a regular knee does, right. as far as estrogen, right? Is that not right. correct? Well, it's also making me think of that famous Midrash where Sarah says, you know, it's at the beginning of Parshat Vayera, the angels come and say that you'll have a child, and then she says, after I have, you know, grown old, after I've withered away, now that I'll have my youth, could such a thing be? And the Midrash says, at that moment, she became a Nida. So, right, <laughs> so exactly. there you have right, a, right. there you have a ninety-year-old woman they becoming an estrogen. Right, right there. Yeah, they <laughs> Um, that's so funny. I mean, the only other thing I would like to sort of add is that sometimes for men, as they get older, it gets harder to ejaculate in that vaginally. And I know that over time we've talked about that being okay to not have intercourse. Um, if you don't have intercourse every time, if you want to use hands or mouth, yes. but what happens if that becomes a regular thing? Like if that's the only way a guy can ejaculate is through a hand or a mm -hmm, mouth, which mm -hmm. gives you more stimulation than a vagina. Right. And the couple's fine with it, but logically I'm thinking. Yeah, it's a good question because the, it's without going into that whole discussion again, but the ruling is based on a toast the position of the re. And he does make mention of if you're not doing it all the time. And that's also the way it appears in the Ramah, where the Ramah says if you're doing it occasionally. So the question is, why does that matter? If it's allowed, it's allowed. What's the difference between all the time or not all the time? And Rav Moshe Feinstein's basic take on it, the specific case talked about there was one about anal intercourse. So Rav Moshe Feinstein's case was, this argument was, you know, that that's not a, 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 the most natural thing to want. And if somebody's doing it occasionally, you assume they're doing it for the variety. But if they're doing it all the time, then you're assuming, then we have to presume they're doing it as a form of birth control. And therefore to have... Oh, so you, it's the birth control It's the birth control the that's the problem. Now, birth control itself is okay. You want to take the pill, but this, fine. We're talking but it's lower. birth control that comes through wasting of semen, okay. through the spilling of the semen outside the woman's body. So it's the combination of those two factors. It's the ejaculating outside of the body as a way of really destroying the semen. For the purpose of destroying the seed. So, so the fact to that, that these are all older postmenopausal people, right. so, that, that's fascinating. So that would make a difference because if it's clear from the context that it's not a way of, it's not a form of birth control, you're doing it all the time because you have to do it all the time, then it's really not an issue. I mean, now not everybody agrees with that read of the sources, but according to that read, that the only concern is that it defines it as being a form of destroying semen because it makes it about avoiding having pregnancy then there's multiple reasons that wouldn't be true in this case. Yeah, I, I just, I want to separate for the men who are listening that um, erection issues are easy to treat now. Like we have oral medication, there's a laser that actually you can use that's extremely effective. There's injections which sound horrible, but they're not horrible at all. That's different from ejaculating. And that, as, as people get older, something like that gets harder. And that's a little bit harder to treat. It's also treatable, but it, it does get harder to treat. And that is where the non-vaginal you know, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. stimulation becomes born. You just need a higher level of stimulation. The yeah. same way some women work better with vibrators. Some men mm -hmm, work better mm -hmm. with a hand or a mouth. So mm -hmm. I just, I need people to understand that that's like normal and fine. And again, if you widen your repertoire, you put sex on the table, your sex can last, you know, your sex life can last forever. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, one other listener question that um, came up recently was a question about introducing new kinds of sex toys, um, introducing different types of kink into sex life a little bit later as a way to kind of spice things up in addition to the scheduling 
tactic. Um, any thoughts about that from either of you? Well, we, we've talked before about how adding all these things in can be incredibly powerful and helpful. Mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of talking about it and thinking of something new. It doesn't really matter what the new thing is. It's just that if you've been having sex with the same person for 40 years, right. it may be time for the two of you to say, like, we want to try something different. You know, we want to use something different. Right. And I also imagine that um, maybe I'm making this up, but I could imagine that uh, that, you know, with a certain growing maturity, it's like the couple feels like maybe comfortable enough with one another to sort of talk about things in life and and think that, oh, what would be so bad if we tried this or we tried that in a way that maybe earlier in the marriage they would, they would be, a, you know, a little embarrassed to talk about them. Do you think there's any truth to that? So that's funny that you said that because I think I've said this before. I think it's we're a little counterintuitive in that case. You would think that, mm. but lehefech, often mm. couples, they feel like, you who is this person? Like, I'm not going to say to my husband now, I want him to spank me. Like, he's uh, going to look at me like I'm crazy. Like, we've been, been going know, on and that people are usually more comfortable early on because early on you feel like you, you don't know anything about the other person. So the person says, like, I, I failed to tell you that I, you know, really like you to, you know, I don't know, turn me upside down. Mm-hmm. But um, but or I want to try anal sex. But I would encourage couples to do that. Like, and that discomfort is a good thing because <laughs> that discomfort throws you back to that time when you were a little ed- edgier with each other because you were nervous and that's that's mm. fine um don't be scared of that that it becomes like the most important thing i mm. think so i think we had a guest once before who spoke about or maybe you've much ever spoke about this about a a way to help couples sort of find you know things that they might mutually find exciting but might be afraid to mention or suggest that they go down like a list of things and they write separately you know yes no maybe and then they compare their lists. Um, so I'm just putting it out there as a, as a suggestion because I think uh, a lot of couples maybe are still listening to this and still afraid to talk about things they haven't spoken about before in their marriage. No, that is a great strategy. And there are books that give you lists. And I'm I'm trying to think offhand if I can like li- name a book, but I can't. But I promise that a future episode, I will come back with the name of the book. Yeah. Great. Or we could post it on our social or media. We could post it on social media. <laughs> okay. Okay. Coming up, our conversation with Brecha Bardwigger, also known as Balabustas. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel. I serve the New York metropolitan area and work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both in the Orthodox community and beyond. My practice is built on ethos of safety and spirituality for baby and guests. I support the joy of text because I believe that Torah and sexual health are not mutually exclusive, and both are strengthened when examined through a shared lens. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website at familymohel.com, or you can give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast and Bisha'at Tova. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Bracha Bard Wigder, also known as Balabustas. Uh, she is a sex and intimacy coach, bridal and sex educator, and birth doula. And on top of all of that, is an Instagram influencer with over 12,000 followers. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Bracha. Thank you for having me. And rumor has it you just came, literally just came from a birth. I literally just came from a birth. Like the entire night, I'm like, 
am I canceling on much? Am I really hope not? <laughs> what would have happened if it would have lasted an extra few hours? I would have had to text that I'm not going to make it. <laughs> we had discussed that in advance. Yeah, how many I did you tell do her in advance. I do six births in a month. So right. it wasn't like unlikely that right. you have a birth. What's the possibility? Did the person have a baby? Is the baby healthy? What I had the a baby, have... beautiful baby, eight pounds. Cute boy. Great. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> so part of my life is that it's unpredictable. Wow. It's yeah. really it's incredible. I don't know how how you do that. I freak <laughs> out. Um so kind of going off of that a little bit, um, can you give us some insight into what you do? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things. So kind of give us give us a rundown. Sure. So um I specialize in women's health. Um kind of start with the bridal, then they have a baby, and then they need sex ed information. I don't know. It somehow all ties in. <laughs> they might need the sex ed before they have the baby, they, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where the bridal education comes okay. in. But then sometimes people need more assistance or brides who I haven't worked with reach out to me, you know, women who have been married for many years who need assistance in their intimacy life. Hmm. And bridal includes uh, laws of NIDA or specifically? Yes. Uh-huh. I do. I teach the laws of NIDA. Um, as a course, and then sex coaching is independent of that. But my brides have a very thorough knowledge of everything intimacy related because I think Kala's should be learning a lot in advance. So if somebody signs up for your NIDA class, they have to separately come to a uh, sex, class. sex class, intimacy class? It's included in my course, actually. Oh, it's included. Yeah. Good. Okay. So my, my NIDA course is, um, I do it in groups. It's a halacha course. And then I do a one-on-one sex and intimacy class with each kala. That's like literally a three-hour sex education class that wow. everyone should be learning. And there are, of course, other bridal educators that think you know, I'm teaching a little too much, but I'm like, they're getting married. <laughs> they're going to be having sex. I think they should know the right. foundation. They should come to your class. And then yeah. they should, right, exactly. So just talk a little about your training because you're because that's what's always fascinating to me. So your sure. doula training, I assume, was formal training, mm-hmm. but your sex and intimacy stuff is probably more. So as first, I did a college certification in Israel for a whole year. Um, I studied there. We're actually living there in Shana Roshona in our first year of marriage, and that's how I got into it because I had other friends who were married for longer time than me, older than me, and weren't doing too well in the bedroom. So I'm like, this is a problem. And I have three younger sisters, and I was the oldest girl. I'm like, yeah, we need to change that. So that's kind of how I got into it. Um, then I trained to be a doula that year too. And in then Israel. I, in Israel. And that, well, I was basically on break from college. I was going for social work and psychology, um, but we were living in Israel. So I figured instead of kicking around time, I might as well learn some more. So I also did a life coaching certification there and NLP. Is doula training completely interchangeable, like America, Israel? Like It, it, it depends what the certification is. Like um, there are national uh, certifications. Mine is international. I could do a birth in China if I want. An international doula certification. Yes, it's called DANA. It's the okay. only organization that is international. Donna, Donna Zork. Yeah. So I'm certified with them. And then the sex part. And then I did a life coaching uh, course with the Jerusalem Institute. And I decided to specialize in sexuality based on the fact that I was already a bridal educator. And that was really the direction that I was going in. Hmm. And I was dealing with women with their intimate parts already being a doula. And it just kind of morphed into that. That's just what I became passionate about. So I taught a lot of students bridal education. And then a lot of women were confiding in me about their sex lives. And then I started independently coaching married women through it, not just single women. And so that's give how. us a sense who your clientele is. Um, 
Literally every affiliation of the Orthodox Jewish really? woman. Huh. Yeah. Probably. You live where? I live in New Jersey, in okay. Hillside, New Jersey. Um, I would say a good half of my clientele is Hasidic mm-hmm. Jewish women, and the other half is really a mix of hmm. everybody else: modern Orthodox, Orthodox. People know about Yeshivish, this Litvish. from word of mouth, basically. Instagram. So it's, well, <laughs> I, I, it's I started on Facebook first, and then Facebook kind of died out. It's like a little bit in the old ages. Um, so I just go wherever the people are. I went on Instagram. Everyone's on Instagram. I have a website for Jewish women called balbustas.com. It's a forum that I've been running since my son was about a year old. So it's now about Mm -hmm. eight years old. We talk about everything on the website, including intimacy. I I, I created a whole category on there that is an anonymous section so that women could post things anonymously. Have you got any pushback? I have. Can you talk about that a little bit, like and what that's been like for you and how you've handled it? Um, it's never fun. <laughs> is it from people or is it from rabbinic? Both. Okay. Definitely both. Um, at some point, I had some pushback from a particular rabbi and another rabbi had it out with him and he backed oh, out. Oh, good for God. you. Yeah. So yeah. what was their, what was their, what, what did they say? Like, what was it that they had a problem? You can't it- talk about sex online, intimacy is supposed to stay in the bedroom, you know, people need help. They should know to go to someone private but people don't even know that they could go to someone privately because nobody talks about it. And the rabbi that defended you, how did he respond to this? Um, He, well, he's on my team. (laughs) Right. So he likes me. I like him. We get along, uh, meaning he fought for me. He fought on my behalf. How did he he respond to the claim that it wasn't, let's say, Tzniyas to be discussing these things in a public forum? Um, I think it wasn't so much that he had to say that, rather that he was the bigger person in this Uh particular situation. Mm -hmm. But if a bigger rabbi than him came along and was like, oh, she can't do that, I don't think there's much you could do. Mm, Meaning, I'm not, I'm never going to get everyone's approval and that's okay. No, Mm -hmm. you're of course that that's true. Yeah. Um. I don't know how to ask this in a nicer way, but do you feel like it matters? Do you feel like women who are need to come to you will come to you anyway, even if maybe there's some rabbis who think it's not a good idea? I'm sure there are some women who would come to me who probably aren't if the rabbis are saying no. But at the same time, I've had a lot of women come to me with the rabbi's recommendation. So I think it depends on what their you know open mindedness is in that regard and what you know, where they're holding basically with that. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm so curious, like, like when you're speaking to these Kalas, have most of them like never learned anything about sex before in their lives? And like, this is their first exposure to anything about sex or are a lot of them coming to you with ideas and knowledge already? So that's a good question. Most of the calls that I teach do know about sex. Not a whole lot, but they're aware that it exists. And usually, though, they think they know a lot more than they actually do. But what they really just know is, I'm petrified. <laughs> Help me. You know? <laughs> I'm terrified to have sex for the first time. That's usually what they know. So there's a lot of fear so, around it. There's that, so much that you're fear. Hearing. Oh yeah, it's so, so much fear. Yeah, it's oh, so interesting. I'm sorry. I just have to tell this joke. What comes out? <laughs> what comes after fear and before sex? Finif. Okay, forget it. Nobody got it. No one. Wait, what? <laughs> Is that after Yiddish? fear and before sex? Finif. It's Yiddish. Four, five, six. Fear, right. finif, sex. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she got explain. it. She got, got it. it. I got it, but it's I was like self so processing because I'm like, Yiddish. I don't know any Yiddish. Oh my god. <laughs> a bit more of a dramatic pause. Yes, right. <laughs> dramatic pause. Okay. Yeah, anyway. Okay. Fine. Anyway. You have to know Yiddish. Sarah was trying to ask a real question. Okay. I'm sorry. Back to you. No, that was good. My real question. No. Um. So. 
I, yeah, I'm, I'm always so intrigued by this kind of dynamic of fear as opposed to excitement. Cause I, I think that, um, that's something that seems to kind of differ across like communal lines. Mm -hmm. It seems like the more maybe connect, like, like the more sexually aware a young couple is like the more excitement there might be. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to partially answer with a question, which, you know, Bracha can respond to. If you've been physically active, but not had some something that we'll call sex, but you've been physically active sex. with somebody else. My guess is you're more excited about being able to do more. If you haven't touched anybody, then that's where the fear comes in. Is that your experience as well? A hundred percent. There's a lot of fear in the unknown. There, they've, you're, you know, most of these brides have been modest their entire lives, never touched a boy or a man, right? Teenage to you know adulthood, um, and don't have any like uh, context for a sexual touch, and so all of a sudden they're like, "Here, go from this beautiful modest wedding dress and put on lingerie and look sexy." It's just yeah, it's a it's, it's, a, like, it's, it's a lot to adjust to. Give us some sense of the questions that come after the marriage later in life. Um, from my brides, the yeah. truth is not that much. Thank God. I think that's because, because I teach them a them. lot. I really mm -hmm. prepare them, but I do get a lot of questions from newlyweds who haven't studied with me. Mm -hmm. Many times I'll have like newly married women reach out to me being like, I did not know you existed. I took my college class with so-and-so. I really didn't learn anything. I'm having this problem. My friend said I could reach out to you. Can you help me out? Um, a lot of times it's pain, you know? Um, painful intercourse. Sometimes it's um, fear Actually, of I, the cheating. way I met Bracha was at a course I was giving for physical therapists and therapists. I think it was for physical therapists and therapists yes. specifically about pain. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. So, because pain is a big issue. It is. It's a really big issue. And I think actually one of the problems I'm seeing now, at least in the Jewish community, is that so many women who have any pain related sexual disorders don't know anyone who they could talk to about it besides mm. their OB. So they go to their OB and you know what the OB tells them? Sit in a zits bath. Take a glass of wine. Take a glass of wine. Have Tylenol. You're going to be fine. Your body's going to stretch. They just get that advice. Three years later, they're still having painful sex Wow. for the okay. few times that and they're having it. And it's it. not uncommon. I know we've no, discussed this before, but can you explain to me why the medical education of OBs does not include this regular can phenomenon? I, can, I can I explain I, yeah, to you? Can I tell yes. you a crazy story? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, no. I, I, I'm more aggravated about it than you are. I'm Just sure. Like, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm coming from the doula angle, from the sex coach <laughs> angle, from the call teacher. It's ridiculous. I had one client literally this past week who she went to her OB. Her OB first told her to sit in a zits bath, which has nothing to do with sexual pain disorders, as I'm sure Batsheva could tell you from today to tomorrow, right? Then after that, she went, she had the guts to still go back to him and told him, I tried that. It didn't help me. So he gave her lidocaine. So he numbed he himself. She numbed wow. herself. Oh, they often give They lidocaine. were having numbing sex, which right, was very uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Yeah. So oh after God. that, she had the guts to go to him again and be like, it didn't help me. Went back to him a third time. You know what he told her? There's nothing you can do. Wow. Wow. So she said, oh, who can I go to? There's nothing you oh can do. That is, all I can tell you is that you guys are sitting there saying, oh, my God. And I'm going to tell you. You hear I this am not all surprised. The and there's there's a new podcast out called Tight Lipped, which you may right. well, have you seen. And um and the average number of women, you should listen to the most recent episode, the average number of doctors that women with pelvic pain go to before they get a solution, I think is twelve. Oh my it's god. It's insanity. If somebody were to type people. into Google 
right? Pain during intercourse. I hope they'll get maids. <laughs> but if they don't, not, you got to advertise. I don't understand. If I had something that wasn't being treated by the doctor, I would type it in. But I would type it into Google. Yes, exactly. And they'll find a sexual abuse history, which is not true. Mm-hmm. And also, sexual pain is complicated because there's lots of different kinds of sexual mm-hmm. pain. It's not like that's like saying we type in the headache, right? right? So you could go back to your doctor five times. You know what right. I mean? Anyway, wow. sorry. Um, so, and what kind of questions do you get from people who've been married longer? Um, never in the mood, not attracted mm-hmm. to my husband anymore. Um, I don't like the male body. What do you do with I'm not attracted to the male body? Um, try to dig a little deeper and find when that started. Cause I'll almost always find from them that they were attracted and then something happened and that changed. So if it's relationship, related i usually then refer them to a sex therapist so like someone who could specialize in that but if it's something more about reacclimating to whatever changes happened then that got them in that place then i could address it like so a lot of times it's post-birth and not feeling yeah not feeling attractive themselves getting out of a groove having been so long since they were last together that when they are together it's just quick and uncomfortable Things like that. How do you respond to the sort of boredom? It's not exciting anymore. So we talk about spicing it up, which Mm -hmm. is a huge part of my class in terms of the education aspect. Like so many religious people have no idea that they're allowed to use products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, as long as it involves just the two of you and, you know, there's a couple of rules. Right. I mean, from my, I don't know how you <laughs> how you hold with that. We'll compare as far as possible. Right, right, but right. in ter- like for me, I tell them there's three. There's just three stipulations there, and mm-hmm. as long as they're fine, you can do whatever you want. Hmm. So, hmm. so is there yeah. something that really gets you stuck? Yeah, um, I make it very clear to every client in the first session that they hire me. Um, I talk to them about the difference with, with with what I do, what a coach is versus a therapist. And I kind of, you know, explained to them that I'm, you know, I don't have the degree to psychoanalyze you, so I won't. That's not my job. So if I feel like we hit a wall or you need that in your care, then I'll refer you out for that. And I obviously also can't guarantee any outcomes the same way a therapist can't. They just say, I could guarantee you that I'm not going to waste your time. I'm busy. You're busy. Like, if I feel like we hit a wall or I gave you as much information or education as possible because that's what I cover and that's not enough for you, then I'll recommend you to someone else. Mm. But I've helped a lot of women like oh, have about. orgasms that have never had wow. married for three years, five years, 15 years. Wow. Fabulous. And a lot of it was that part's like the lack of education. If there's something more going on that, you know, is more psychological, then I would refer them to a sex therapist. So it just depends how deep it goes for them. So I get this question a lot. I'm really curious what you think about this. Do you think the community is changing in terms of its attitude and approach to sex education? And So it's definitely a lot better now than it was 10 years ago. But, you know, still every so often something happens and I'm like, oh, why are we going backwards, you know? Something happens because you get approached in some way. Yeah, or- I get approached or there's rabbis speaking out against talking about intimacy at all or there's, you know, pushback, not just to me, but to other educators. Um, or the fact that let's say there are some educators that will create a course and be happy to teach it properly, and then the event gets shut down literally right before. Like there's this Hasidish um, couple in Williamsburg who is teaching 
unbelievable. They had such an incredible turnaround because they were actually talking about sex, which is such a novelty in their community, uh, as openly as they were, put it that way, and people were literally flocking to them, and the rabbis shut it down. This is a married couple, mind you. Right, right. So There have recently been a few books, I don't, um, one by Jenny Rosenfeld, another recently came out of a similar genre that tries to introduce sex to couples that are from, you know, so it's sort of mm-hmm. it's explicit, but in a very... It's a newer type of a way. That's, right. I think, the goal. Are you aware of those books? Do, mm-hmm. do, do, are, do you feel people are reading them? What's people your are reading them. Um, I personally still think that it should be a lot more explicit. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. But mm-hmm. then that's up yeah, to me to write yeah. such a book. <laughs> it's like on my list of things to accomplish in my life. Mm-hmm. I got to write a book on that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Right. If you can spare your time from Instagram. Yeah. I'm also curious, like, do you prefer the – the dual work feels very different to me than the coaching work. Like, ha- Right? Because it's much more like, oh, my God, you have to do it right now and that – right, this right. moment. And it's also very most- hands-on in a different way and – this, but you'd be surprised how much in like relationship and intimacy comes up even in doula work. Well, it's such an intimate experience. Sex is what got them there. Right. <laughs> you know, you're sharing in a very private moment a couple's life. Her vagina is all out and, you know, having a baby. And then she right. needs help with recovery. Then I'm very valuable in the sense that I could answer her questions for recovery well, getting back to mikvah. Then the cycle continues. How know? about the relationship so. between her and her husband? Like, are you, do you play a role in that through the period of preparing for the birth, birth after the birth? Um, most couples do want to meet with me together. Some don't. And then I just meet with the woman, but I'd leave that up to them. I would mm-hmm. say majority these days really meet together. Mm-hmm, so in mm-hmm. that sense, the world is changing. Like 10 years ago was only the women at every meeting. And now it's like the guys are like, Hey, yeah, I want to, mm-hmm, I want to, I want to partake in that. Are you seeing that change also with preparing for marriage at all? Like, do you ever meet with couples and or is there a male equivalent to you who you mm. know, because you want to make sure that they're both getting the same message, right? Correct. So actually, interestingly enough, my husband is a business guy. Um, he never did a Hassan teacher training course because thank God his hands are full and other things. But because it was really disturbing to me, as I would hear some brides come back to me with the misinformation that they received on what they're fiancés, what their chassanum were learning, I was like, yeah, tell him to call my husband. <laughs> so he unofficially taught a bunch of single guys for years just the sex schmooze. That's what the guys uh-huh. call it. Like not the full halacha course. They could learn it from someone else, but I offered it to most of my colleagues. I said, if your chassan wants to call my husband within a week before their wedding, like don't call the night before and be like, oh my God, I didn't have time. Like he's busy, you know, be respectful of his time, but he can call him and just make sure that you guys are on the same page and answer any questions. Cause I find most of the anxiety almost always with brides and grooms comes down to, do they have to consummate on the wedding night or wow. not? And there's so much pressure surrounding wow. that. And when I'm sitting there telling them, you don't have to, like, take your time, take it easy, and teaching them the halachas and how to navigate that. But the chassan learns, too Something bad. Else. You got to do it all the way no matter what. And they're coming in from separate worlds in that sense. She feels completely powerless, even if she's saying no, because he believes he has to do that because it's the law. So I don't understand how your husband's sex schmooze uh, yeah. addresses their halachic concerns, what well, they've been hearing from their rebbeim, their rosh yeshiva. It's a really good question. Bottom line is I think guys are so much more simplistic, which in <laughs> this way is easy. Because oh my, my husband's like, 
dude, I'll show you the source. I'll be like, okay. And then he reads it to him. He's like, cool. So my rabbi taught it to me wrong. Like they just both, women are like, oh, I have to understand, but it doesn't make sense. But I the rabbi said, no, I have to talk to my, this, my mom and my sister, my best friend and her teacher. It's just like, guys are like, show me the source. And they'll be like, well, that guy fooled me, but you know, I'm not going to buy it. Wow. So right. and also because they know that their bride learned with me and I am certified. Like mm-hmm. he's just teaching. He's saying to them what I'm not going to say to a single man, mm-hmm. but it's the same content. Material, right? Yeah. Wow. Does anybody reach out to you to do high schools or like to do girls before marriage? Like has any of that been discussed? I wish. See, when you say like did the, <laughs> did the world change in the last 10 years, high schools have a lot to catch up on still, unfortunately, in terms of the sex education. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I feel like there are there is a niche there of some some more right wing mm-hmm. girls high schools who want to offer something but don't really know even where to start. Like I think right. you were sort of speaking to this before, like the fact that people need this information and they they know that they need the information but they don't really know how to go about getting it or schools sometimes don't really know the best way to kind of implement any kind of sex education platform so right i don't know which i get why they're torn because they're like well you're single and it's we're hoping it's not applicable but at the same time they have to realize that for a lot of students it is right and safety should be discussed and respect and mutual and consent and all that should be covered and it's not Mm. right do you find that most of the brides you teach really haven't had any kind of physical contact before they're married? I would say today it's about half and half. Yeah. Okay. About 50-50. Which is usually a shocking number for people to hear. Would you say almost all of that 50% that haven't are from the more Hasidic Haredi community or not necessarily? 50%. Meaning if you said about half of your clientele is right. Hasidic Haredi right. and the other half. So most of them have not had any. Right. Yeah, because they they usually date like twice right. and then get married or, you know, right. it's all planned for them. So it's a little bit different. But people who like date on their own, you know, go out. Um, I find that a good half of them are mm. are being intimate to some capacity. I'm impressed that 50% are not. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, that, but again, it's... Well, there's a lot of people who value Shomer Nagia. Well, that's my point. I didn't realize that it was yes. uh, that high. That's, that, it well, is. I think that's, from a halachic perspective, that's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with you on that. <laughs> so my last question, if we're ready for that, um, is... What does balabustas mean? And how did <laughs> how did your projects take on that term? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, actually, it's not that complicating. But when my son was born, um, I had a really rough recovery. And he was super colic and spent many hours crying or sleeping on me. So I found that I was never able to call any friends and ask them any mom questions, which was like frustrating. I was going through it for the first time and I couldn't talk to anyone about it. So I decided to just open a small Facebook group and I just added like my 50 friends who had recently had children like within the last two or three years and figured we could just all schmooze in there and you could ask a question about breastfeeding at three o'clock in the morning and no one will be upset about it. So I did that and um, it just kept growing and more friends were asking, can my friend join? Can my friend join? And by the time I turned around, I had 500 members in there. My hus- I, didn't, my, I didn't even tell my husband about it yet because it was like a little group of friends like talking in the middle of the night. 
So then I told him about it and he's like, cool. And I was like, you know what? And then I suddenly started seeing like a need for like talking about intimacy, marriage, relationships, sex, postpartum and all of that. So I created a separate account on Facebook that was like an anonymous login that everyone could use to log in, ask a question, log out. Um, and by the time I turned around, all of a sudden there was like 1,500 Mm. members in there and, and that's you, when i was like i gotta open a website and make this formal and you have like some how many followers Twelve thousand. am i getting Twelve thousand right? followers on, on instagram. instagram but did you mean that or did you mean the name right so the facebook group was actually called the new moms and then i didn't want to make that the website so i'm like what do i call a website it's got to be one word it has to be catchy has to encompass a jewish woman and we were out with a couple of friends one night my husband and you know a couple of other people were like guys I'm like I need a name for a business you have to all help me and one of them was just like what about something with like balabustas and we figured out how to make it modern with two o's and I'm like that's it that's really that was it next day I made it into an LLC and everything since then has been under my corporation on that so before you end you should also before you end you should say how people can follow you People can follow me on Instagram um, at Balabustas, B-A-L-A-B-O-O-S-T-A-S. Um, or if you're a Jewish woman, you are welcome to join my website, um, balabustas.com. There's a forum that you create a login account for. And um, if you're a Jewish woman, you're welcome to join. Well, I will certainly be joining after this <laughs> conversation. This sounds amazing. Thank you so, Thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next up, the final word. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. Okay. So now for the final word, we have a listener comment from Shimi Feintuck, who's a licensed clinical social worker and a credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor. Uh, so he wrote a lovely, lovely little note into us. So he writes, I'm a psychotherapist and I absolutely love your podcast. Most of us have been brought up with little or no sex education, and any education received might be ill-informed or, or, or extreme. I appreciate the way you discuss these difficult topics with nuance, how you encourage us to ask our own questions, and how you make even the most taboo of topics as normal as can be. I've recommended your podcast to many clients, especially the episode on birth control and the one on chuva and guilt. Clients have mentioned to me that they find this podcast to be a solution to the difficult position they find themselves in, having been exposed to extreme ideas about sex but feeling too embarrassed to ask the questions, so they just remain limited by their original unhealthy ideas. But your discussions have helped them feel more comfortable talking about sex as part of their lives and feel like they are normal in their struggles. May you continue educating us for many years to come. I think that is so unbelievably nice. Oh, my God. We have to use that in our advertising. I, I know. <laughs> that is so, so fabulous. Can I just say, like, it is so important to us that you write in, and I hate to say this, but rate us, because that's what allows other people to hear us. So, the, you know, the rating us and writing comments is really important in terms of spreading the word. It's really, really appreciated. But the comments and the letters to us make us feel – It's sometimes it's hard. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but sometimes I feel like we're talking a little bit into a vacuum because we're here in the studio and, like – we don't know that anybody's actually listening. So when we get these comments, it's it's very, very meaningful to all of us. Yeah, to know we're making really such a difference in people's lives. Yep. 
So thank you so much to Shimmy Fine Tech. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest, Brecha Bardwigder. This episode of The Joy of Text was recorded by Mike Hurst, was produced and edited by Max Hollander, and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Chag kasher v'sameach!